you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. Hello. Hi. Is Leticia here? Yes, she is. In late April, one of my producers, Francisco Avilas Pino, pulled up outside a small house on a dead-end street in Whittier. It's mostly a bedroom community just east of L.A. On the driveway in front of the garage door, there was a small altar. There was a photo of a bald man with a wide smile, flowers in a vase, a rosary, and a plastic cup of beer. Above it hung a banner that said, Justice for Marco. Okay, should I wait here in the living room? Yeah, let me go grab Okay, her. no worries. So I can find out. Francisco was there to talk to Leticia Vasquez. She's the mother of the man in the photo outside, Marco. The house was busy with children eating and playing, and the TV was on. Would it be okay to talk here, or can we talk yes. somewhere a little more quiet? They headed into the backyard, where Marco's widow, Christina, and some friends were making posters for a march. They all sat down around some tables and chairs. It was starting to cool off. Birds were calling from the telephone wires. Initially, it seemed to Francisco like Christina didn't want to talk, but it turned out she was the storyteller. Why, why do you think it's important to sort of share Marco's story? I think it's important to share his story because I feel like Marco and many people that fit Marco are easy to dismiss and easy to lock away, easy to pass judgment on, easy to say he was deserving of it. I think that he fits the perfect description of what it looks like when a system has failed you from early on. Um, And it makes me angry to talk about it. When Alex Villanueva ran for office, he said he was going to do three things. Reform the sheriff's department, rebuild it from the ground up, and restore the community's faith in the department. That last point, he said, was the most important. But since he became sheriff, there have been some disturbing allegations against his deputies from families like the Vasquez's. Allegations I thought anyone who describes himself as a reformer would take seriously. I was wrong. I'm Frank Stoltz, and you're listening to Imperfect Paradise, The Sheriff. How did you meet Marco? We met eighth grade and junior high right here at Los Nantos Middle School. We became boyfriend and girlfriend. It was like a teenage love because it was very intense and it happened very quickly. And then we ended up getting pregnant with our oldest daughter at 14. We separated when we were 17, 17, 18, after our second daughter was born. And for the most part, I pretty much raised the girls by myself for 15 years. Christina says Marco spent time in prison in his 20s. And when he was released in 2014, 
he came back into the picture and was like, hey, like, I've wasted a lot of years. I want my family back. And maybe this is our chance to rebuild together. I knew I was taking a big chance. And I'm like, oh, me and this guy have history. Like, how do I know he's going to stick around? You know, but I was like, oh, well, you only live once. So they got married. But Marco had changed in prison. This is his mother, Leticia. It was difficult in a way because we knew that he had his paranoid schizophrenia. So it was getting used to the new man that, unfortunately, he became due to his illness. And Sorry for cutting off, but was this something that you think got worse because of him being incarcerated? I've wondered that. A lot, because it's not something us both growing up in our homes that was spoken of. We didn't talk about depression. We didn't talk about mental illnesses. It was, nothing's wrong with you, you're fine. Suck it up. In 2012, while still in prison, Marco had a psychotic break. He became convinced his entire family had died, and nothing could snap him out of it. It never went away. It's just he... He did really good about hiding it. It was always there. He was always paranoid. He was always scared about us being hurt, us being kidnapped or raped or killed, etc. He never had peace. It was, that paranoia ate at him all the time. Doctors diagnosed Marco with paranoid schizophrenia and placed him on medication. It helped. Marco had been a truck driver before going to prison and he was able to get his license again when he got out in 2014. He leased a truck and started working down at the port, hauling cargo containers. So we were, do- we were doing really good, and it gets me emotional every time I talk to it because I remember I was already pregnant with Mason, and it was probably a few months before things just started going bad. And we're doing laundry on a Sunday. We're putting clothes away. And I was like, you know, babe... Because we both grew up, like, parents struggling, trying to give us our best, but we didn't come from much, you know? And I said, I, we're putting the kids' clothes away and our clothes away. I go, I can't tell you that I've ever had five pairs of pants to my name. Or even more than two pairs of shoes. I said, look at everything we have, you know? Like, we have so much. Like, sometimes I'm like, damn, is this real? And his eyes are watery, too. He's like, yeah, what do they find? No, like crazy, huh? I said, who would have thought two knuckleheads getting knocked up, teen parents, and people thought we were never going to be nothing, you know, where we came from, and just like the stereotypes people put on you, like, what kind of future were they going to have? And I'm like, look at us, you're making over 100000 a year, ex-parolee, like, who would have ever thought this is us, like, we made it. In the fall of 2019, Marco's mental illness got worse. Then, October 6th. That's after the break. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com sweeps. 
Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. Marco's family says that evening he was off his medication and he was having a delusion that chongos or monkeys in Spanish were inside his house and that they wanted to hurt his family. He was so convinced that his family was in danger that he called 911 himself. Leticia also called 911. She wanted to make sure the sheriff's deputies who were on their way knew that her son was having a psychotic episode. When deputies arrived around 8 o'clock, they ordered the entire family out of the house. Marco paced in and out, smoking a cigarette. The family asked that Marco be taken into custody on a psychiatric hold. But a clinician from the county's psychiatric response team who arrived with the deputies decided Marco was not posing a threat to himself or anyone else. So they all left. Soon after that, Marco began saying he wanted to kill himself. His oldest daughter called 911 again. Around 10.40 p.m., deputies came back, this time without a clinician. There are different versions of what happened next, The sheriff's department's official statement on the incident says deputies found Marco standing in the driveway, screaming at his family and slashing with a large knife at a woman standing nearby. It says a field sergeant and two deputies repeatedly ordered him to drop the knife and that instead he continued to move towards them. That's when the sergeant and deputies opened fire, hitting Marco 11 times. The Vasquez family disputes almost all of the department's account. They say that deputies arrived with their weapons drawn. They say the reason Marco had a knife was to protect his family from the Changos. But they say Marco did not make any aggressive movements towards any of the deputies, did not move towards them, and did not make any motion that would suggest he was trying to hurt them. They say the deputies did not investigate whether Marco was having a mental health crisis, did not de-escalate the situation and did not give Marco enough time to comply with their instructions. They say within seconds of arriving, deputies shot and killed Marco in front of his family, right there on the driveway where the altar now sits. The family held a novenario, a nine-day-long Catholic viewing ceremony, at their house. During that time, Marco's widow, Christina, says she felt like the sheriff's department was watching her. We would see patrol cars drive with their lights off in the cul-de-sac. And that was not normal before? No. No. Every night, the ghetto bird was flying over the backyard very slowly. Every night. Christina and Leticia say they spent the next few months after Marco's death in shock. We didn't say nothing. We didn't protest. We didn't do anything to bring awareness to what had happened to him. Honestly, for me, like my marking point where I was like, that's it, I'm done being quiet, was when George Floyd happened. Then I said, excuse my language, fuck this, like I'm done being quiet. It was like they experienced an awakening, that they could do more than just file a lawsuit against the sheriff's department, which they had done. That lawsuit is winding its way through the court. They could march for Marco just like people marched for George Floyd. 
so they planned a march to the Pico Rivera Sheriff Station and advertised it on their Justice for Marco Vasquez Jr. Facebook page. And then, three nights before the march, Christina saw flashlights outside the house. She heard a knock on the door. Two sheriff's deputies were standing on her doorstep. And so they're like, oh, you know, so we hear you guys are going to be holding a march. And, you know, we're just here to remind you, you have your right to protest. And we're here to offer our services if you need any assistance from us. And I'm the whole time I'm just staring at them like you're fucking kidding me. Right. I can't say anything, but I'm just staring at them like, why are you here? And so late, no one can see you because the street has crappy lighting. Can't see anything. And so they're like, you know, we want to know who's organizing this. I am. Oh, okay. Do you know about how many people are coming? I don't. Okay, so what streets are you going to be taking? The main streets. It's not entirely unusual for police to check in with organizers of a protest, to plan for street closures and such. But to Christina and Leticia, this didn't feel like a helpful kind of visit. It felt like a we've got our eyes on you kind of visit. Like I'm being very general at this point. Like you're not getting any specifics out of me. You're not getting any information out of me. Like I just wanted them fucking gone. And then from there, they gave us their name and number. If we needed any help, we could call them. They took down my number, my name and my number. Um, Like they don't have it already. Yeah. I kind of took it like a like a friendly reminder, like, hey, guys, we're always watching and we know what you're up to. Christina and her family had just started to speak up about Marco's death. Now she felt like deputies were trying to scare them. Another time, she was in her car when a deputy's SUV began driving behind her. She turned into a CVS, and so did the SUV. She parked, and the SUV stopped, idling. So at that point, my heart is like beating in my throat because I was like, what the hell are they about to do? I'm not stressing because I'm like, my tags are current, my insurance is current, I'm clean. I'm not stressing, but I'm freaking out because I'm like, I have my baby and it's just me. So right away, I grab my phone. I'm like, let me get one of my kids on FaceTime because God forbid something happened, at least they know what's going on, right? The SUV left the parking lot but stopped in the alley. Christina hustled towards the store, carrying her baby and her phone, looking over her shoulder. Are they reversing? Where are they going? Like, is it just me being paranoid? Because sometimes now I feel like I'm just crazy because any cop I see, I'm like, oh my God, they're following me. Maybe it's not that. I just happen to be at the same place at the same time as them. Listening to Christina tell this story, it sounds like she's not even sure what to make of it. Neither am I. I've been covering the police for 30 years in L.A., and I know that police harass people. But messing with a family who witnessed deputies killing their loved one? I've never heard of that before. It sounded incredibly cruel. Christina Vasquez is not alone. During Villanueva's time as sheriff, other families say they've been harassed, too. Families of people killed by L.A. County Sheriff's deputies. Hi. My name is Stephanie Luna. I'm Anthony Daniel Vargas's aunt. Most of you guys are familiar with my nephew. He was shot and killed August 12, 2018. He was shot 13 times, 11 times in his back, two times in his head by two of your officers. You know, the harassment is real. It's not something that you just hear on the news, something you see on TV. It's a real thing. It's November of 2019, 
and I'm at a meeting of the Sheriff's Civilian Oversight Commission. People come here to raise concerns about the department. And today, people have come to testify about being harassed by sheriff's deputies. It's incredibly intense. I see women holding hands, comforting each other, mustering up the courage to speak. Each of them is related to someone who was killed by deputies. Hi, I'm Valerie Vargas. I'm Stephanie Luna's sister, and Anthony Vargas was my nephew. I got followed from my mom's house in East LA by a black, unmarked vehicle with no license plate, tinted windows, no back license plates, onto the 710. At my nephew's funeral, police came by like four or five cars deep and making faces at the people at the funeral. Within 24 hours of my grandson's killing, the community gathered together. L.A. County Sheriff appeared in the form of a word I can best describe, a slow-moving caravan of vehicles. Unfortunately, the lead car slowed Barry down, rolled her window down. The deputy projected her face forward with a huge smile. The best manner to describe such behavior is mocking, laughing, grinning. I believe from their behavior that these actions were meant to mock the recent chat tragedy. I'm the sister of Paulia, who was killed by the Isole sheriffs on June 27th. Since then, we've been harassed. I was arrested, and in the cop car, they did not want to tell me where I was going. They just said it was none of my business. We'll see when we get there. They were driving through the streets of East LA, hitting all the red lights, hitting stop signs, everything. And in my head, I was already going crazy. I know they killed my brother, and I was just thinking what they were going to do to me next. The sheriff wasn't at that commission meeting when all those families spoke up, but his assistant sheriff in charge of patrol, Stephen Gross, was there, and he responded. It is not acceptable for any of our personnel to harass anybody, period, on any level. Our sheriff is committed to due process and justice and transparency, and if anyone was engaged in misconduct, we would want to know about it and we want to hold them accountable. During his campaign for sheriff, Alex Villanueva had promised to reform, rebuild, and restore trust in the department. And here's his assistant sheriff saying, essentially, that's what we're doing. It would be more than a year before the sheriff himself addressed the issue of deputy harassment, and his dismissal of the family's concerns was disturbing. That's after a break. How to LA is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. Its politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And its food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about LA. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. Ah. 
After the hearing, the Civilian Oversight Commission asked Max Huntsman, the inspector general, to look into whether deputies were harassing grieving families. Max looked at a 17-month period from February 2018 to November 2019. He found eight instances of possible harassment. He found that on at least one occasion, an excessive number of deputies showed up to a call for service near a memorial for someone shot by a deputy. On two other occasions, he found deputies arrested family members of shooting victims for insignificant reasons, smoking marijuana in public. And another time, he found deputies arrested two people visiting a memorial allegedly for violating a gang loitering ordinance. Max said the department impeded further investigation. Like so many things, the Sheriff's Department has refused to cooperate in our investigations. So I cannot answer the question of what's really going on. The bottom line is, I think this is a great example of why body cameras are so important. Because so much of what's described is subtle and difficult to assess. The person could say, well, these deputies drove by and they made faces. It's hard to, you know, you're making a face right now. What does the face mean? You know, does the face mean you're mocking me? Does the face mean you're uncomfortable with the situation? Does the face mean you ate something for lunch? It can be hard to say. If you had body camera footage, you might know for sure. There wasn't any body camera footage of any of the complaints. L.A. County Sheriff's deputies did not have cameras at that point, nor was there any cell phone video. One woman, Stephanie Luna, explained why that might be the case. Here she is at the Civilian Oversight Commission hearing. You know, you guys are talking a lot about it's not, you need evidence, you need proof. The problem is, is when we're followed in our vehicles, you know, we can't get our phone and push record because that's reason for you guys to pull us over. Why? Because you guys assume it's a weapon. Anything that gets pulled out, you guys assume it's a weapon. In his report, the inspector general only counted families who had complained directly to the sheriff's department, which people might understandably be reluctant to do. Sheriff Villanueva responded to this report with a letter pointing out there was no hard evidence of harassment. The sheriff's department decided that in four of the cases, the deputy's actions were reasonable. In three, it said it could not determine what happened. Another case is still being reviewed by the district attorney. Then, in February of 2022, as families continued to voice their complaints of harassment, Sheriff Villanueva called reporters to a news conference. Keep going. June 22nd, 21. Harassment of individual, loss of family member. He held his pointer stick and jabbed it at a series of quotes from people he considers his political adversaries, L.A. County's supervisors who had spoken up about families who say they were harassed. He began reading the quotes out loud. Here you go. Holly Mitchell, we have met with too many members of our community who not only had to deal with the grief of losing a family member, but have described horrifying incidents of blatant harassment from the very law enforcement organization that took the life of their loved one. And then he chimes in with his response. These horrifying incidents never made it to a cell phone, not a single one. And they talk about this as an ongoing routine every single day. Oh, my God, how horrible it is. Sheila Kuehl, we see deputies driving by slowly threatening, parking in front of houses, taunting family members with rude comments and laughing at them, driving by memorial sites where families are honoring their loved ones, damaging items at those memorial sites, all of this without a shred of evidence. Not one single cell phone, not one photograph, not one recording, nothing. Why? Because none of it ever happened. That's the whole point. But it's good to sustain this false narrative. That entire statement, all of these are false. 
It is part of a branding campaign that the Board of Supervisors engaged in with all their political appointees. Villanueva sounded convinced that the supervisors were using the allegations of harassment to conduct a smear campaign against him. It's a classic Villanueva move. He's flipping the script. He's turning accusations of wrongdoing around and saying he is the victim. There is another way that Villanueva or any sheriff could respond to this. In Max Huntsman's report, he encouraged Villanueva to take the harassment claims seriously and put in place policies to prevent any harassment in the future. That didn't happen. What I know for a fact is that the department has not put in place protections to stop it, to make sure that they can say, no, no, we know that's not happening, and they aggressively fought back against us when we made the suggestion in the first place. And it's not just the inspector general saying that. My opinion, if I was sheriff and I had this allegation coming from the families that these deputies who were involved in the shooting are now harassing them or doing something, well, then we need to figure out another way to get this resolved. That's Bob Olmsted. He's the man who worked for Villanueva as one of his top people and was a whistleblower in the jail violence scandal. Take these deputies, reassign them. It's no big deal and make it a temporary reassignment to the investigation and everything has been adjudicated and has gone through the court system, whatever the case, put them in another facility where they can work patrol or whatever they're doing. You're going to have to deal with the unions to get all the stuff taken care of. Uh, and you don't see him doing any of this? No, no. So address it. This is pure retaliation and trying to suppress speaking out. Because all these families have been speaking out and including have sued the sheriff's department. Andres Kwan is a lawyer for the ACLU of Southern California. I talked to him in May. The ACLU and the National Lawyers Guild put out their own report on deputy harassment that focused on two of the families who spoke up at the Civilian Oversight Commission. Andres says he personally witnessed harassment. Remember the woman who said she was arrested at her brother's memorial? Andre spent the night waiting for her at the jail. What role do you think the sheriff has played in the harassment of families or how he's reacted to reports of harassment of families? He's led by example by singling out, name-calling, and targeting specific families. And so if deputies see that, right, and see their boss, the sheriff, going on the attack and targeting specific families, what are they going to think? It's almost as if he views them as political opponents. I don't know if you've had that thought. That's right. It's an us versus them mentality, right, Frank? Andres told me he viewed deputy harassment of families the same way he viewed deputy gangs as a symptom. A symptom of a deeply rooted culture within the department that tolerates brutality, violence, secrecy. Villanueva is also a product of that culture. Although the sheriff has had many chances to address these accusations publicly, when I sat down with him in July, I wanted to get into the specifics. He told me I had it all wrong. It was actually these families who were harassing his deputies. I mean, driving slowly by a house, that's not retaliation. They work in the neighborhood. They will drive by slowly every single house in the neighborhood. They waved at me. Well, they didn't flip you off. I think that's an improvement if they're waving. And so 
We keep hearing these reports, but they're coming from a very tiny group of people that are activists, that have an agenda. Some of them are paid. And, uh, paid? Yes, paid activists. By who? Uh, well, that's what some of them are still trying to figure out. And what well, you, I, I don't understand. I mean, they have jobs or... I, well, when you say paid, I, I don't understand. Well, they don't seem to have jobs because some of these people seem to be always available during the, unless they work nighttime jobs or grave shift. But who would be paying them? That's my question. Oh, well, between the ACLU, between uh, Smart Justice California, there's a host of activist groups that are funded by uh, what they call dark money. And it's falling into the hands of, of some of these people. And when you say dark money, what do you mean? Money that comes, uh, you know, 501c4s, for example. And someone like a billionaire, a bored billionaire, will dump a million dollars into this. And that money then gets distributed to all these activist groups. And they get paid 100 bucks to go scream at the local police. Well, I'm going to take a minute to think about this one. Because I'm really upset about this one. That's all right. After I talked to the sheriff, my producer Francisco called Marco Vasquez's mother, Leticia. Francisco read Villanueva's words to her so she could respond to his accusations. How dare him? How dare him accuse us of that? Nothing will ever bring our loved ones back. No amount. You think we're going to sell ourselves cheap for a hundred bucks when there's no amount in the world that's going to be sufficient to bring our loved one back? I would give anything to not be in this situation. To never have witnessed my son being murdered in front of my eyes. Well, you can take those hundred bucks and put them where the sun don't shine, honey. None of that is going to bring back my son. And you're never going to see me ever happy. I'm never going to be happy. They took my sunshine away the day they murdered him. I'm done. After losing a family member in a deputy shooting and then feeling harassed by the same law enforcement agency that did it, and then hearing the head of that agency accuse them of harassment, Leticia and Cristina Vasquez are done with Alex Villanueva. Actually, they're done with the sheriff's department, period. Here's Cristina. I don't have no faith in a damn thing, like not the system, not a man up there promising he's going to be different than the other one. At the end of the day, they're all the same. And like we say, a cop is a cop is a cop. And they all fucking look out for each other at the end of the fucking day. They're not looking out for us. And so I wish I could give you guys a hopeful message. And yes, you know, we see a bright, I don't see a bright future. I don't see nothing changing. Something is changing. Villanueva is up for re-election. But this time, he's catering to a very different group of voters. They want a woke sheriff funded by George Soros. Imagine what that would look like with our woke DA. Spread the word. Spread the word. That's on the last and final episode of Imperfect Paradise, The Sheriff. Imperfect Paradise is a production of LAS Studios. This episode was written and reported by a bunch of us and hosted by me, Frank Stoltz. Our senior producer is Emily Guerin. 
Marina Pena is our producer, and Francisco Aviles Pino is our associate producer. Editing by Meg Kramer and Paul Glickman. Fact-checking by Caitlin Antonios. Sound design and scoring by Emma Alabaster. Mixing by E. Scott Kelly. Original music by Jay Valle. Bruno Lopez Vega is our intern. Antonia Serejido and Leo G. are the executive producers for LAS Studios. Our website, las.com, is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at LAS Studios. The marketing team of LAS Studios created our branding. Thanks to the team at KPCC and LAS Studios, including Megan Garvey, Tony Marcano, Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Casentino, Donald Paz, and thanks to our VP, Shana Naomi Crockpool. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This podcast was made possible with support from the Committee for Greater LA in partnership with the Weingart Foundation. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. All seven states on the Colorado River may have to cut back water, but not everyone agrees on how. From Coloradans who blame others for the crisis. There continues to be a look upstream to solve a problem that we did not create. To farmers who may lose their livelihoods. We don't want to cut equal with everybody else. Will they reach a deal in time? Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.